0: All right, Ephesians chapter 5, as we studied last week, I'm going to read it again to us this week, beginning in verse 22, if you'd follow along as I read. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, because the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. He is the Savior of the body. Now, as the church submits to Christ so also wives are to submit to their husbands in everything. Now, those are going to be our primary verses for study, but let me read just for context because we'll be picking up on some of this other as well. Husbands, love your wives. This is where we were last week. Just as Christ loved the church, we saw how high that bar is, and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word He did this to present the church, that's his bride, to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hates his own flesh, but provides and cares for it, just as Christ does for the church, since we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. To sum up, each one of you is to love his wife as himself, and the wife is to respect her husband. So if you were here last week or tuned in last week, we saw what God says to husbands. He speaks to husbands. He calls them to loving, self-sacrificing leadership. That's what biblical headship is all about, spiritual leadership in the home that looks like self-sacrificing Love. So we looked at that, but now we're going to look at what God says to wives. So we're transitioning from that to, to this other side, this other spouse in the marriage relationship. And we've got this in your notes just to, as a frame of reference. Ephesians 5 contains a primary command to husbands, in verse 25, love your wives. And Ephesians 5 contains a primary command to wives, verse 22, submit to. Your husbands, that's the the primary verb, imperative verb in this text for wives is submit to your husbands. The primary imperative verb for husbands is love your wives and then it unpacks what that love looks like. And then it comes to summary point at the end. You see that again in verse 31. Look down at that, verse 31. To sum up, so he's coming right back to where he started. Each one of you in a marriage relationship is to love his wife as himself And the wife is to, and he uses a slightly different word, respect. It comes across with that same feel, right? That respect her husband. This doesn't mean, just so that we can take this off the table, this doesn't mean he doesn't have to respect his wife. This doesn't mean she doesn't have to love her husband, right? Why does he say, husbands, focus here, Love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives, focus here. The reason that he focuses on that is he's getting back to the original Garden of Eden where things went sideways in Genesis chapter three, and he's saying this is the main ways that, that marriage went off the rails in the beginning. All the way back in Genesis three in the fall when Adam and Eve rebelled against God and their marriage, dysfunction came pouring into their marriage, these were the primary railways and God is saying, I'm installing a way back. I'm installing a way by which we can go back to the original design in creation. So let's just review where marriage got off track biblically let's see if you can fill in this blank uh, in the room at home, let's see if you can fill in this blank. What happened in Genesis chapter three? Adam and Eve, anybody have a guess for what word that is? Yeah, those are all good ones, it sounds like, the ones that I heard. (laughs) Sinned against God, rebelled against God, sinned against God is, is a good one, that's a good description, that's a word that's used throughout the Bible about what fundamentally went wrong back there in the garden, they sinned against God. Um, They made a grab for his throne. They said, we don't want to obey. I know you gave us one law. We don't want to obey that law. And then God comes in, and he confronts the serpent. He confronts Eve. He confronts Adam, and he speaks to each one of them. And he basically says, this is what you just unleashed in the world you have just unleashed a curse upon all of creation dysfunction's now going to flood into every zone of your life and then when he speaks to Eve here's what he says it's going to be on the screen in genesis 3 verse 16 god says your desire eve shall be contrary to your husband and he shall rule over you that's how things broke now you're going to want to do this now he's going to want to do this this is what dysfunction is going to primarily look like. So in your notes, what impact did their rebellion and sin have on marriage? Basically this, Adam becomes a tyrant, Eve becomes a critic. In other words, God was saying in Genesis 3.16, this is going to become a tragic new normal in marriage. If we're going to use the categories of love and respect that are there in Ephesians Chapter five, sin is going to make the husband uh, and his wife hunker down in these new patterns, hunker down in self-protection. So he's going to start saying things like, how can I love her when she disrespects me? That's how he's going to hunker down. And then she's going to hunker down and say, how can I respect him when he doesn't love me? And they're both going to isolate in self-perpetuating selfishness, right? unwilling to say, I'm going to make the first move, unwilling to come back and pursue what was beautiful back there in the garden. So in this passage, in God's word, God is saying, not your marriage. In Christ, I'm reclaiming the original design that I had for marriage pre-fall, what it was like before the fall, naked and not ashamed, loving and cherishing, honoring, respecting, that's all going to come back into the marriage relationship by grace. That's what God is calling husbands and wives to in this text. So we said last week, uh, so last week we were kind of getting on the husbands, right? I go to a physical therapist three times a week for my shoulder And one of the things that I've learned that he likes to say is he says, as he's walking over, he'll give me some exercise to do. He said, do 30 reps of this, then do 30 reps of this, and then I'll be back in a minute. And he comes back and he says, I need to make that more fun for you. And the thing is, he doesn't mean fun the way I mean fun. He means uh, it's gonna hurt more. He's like, that doesn't look like enough fun. And he makes the exercise worse. And he goes around and he makes it more fun for everybody in the room, right? That's kind of what he's doing. So I made it fun for husbands last week. I'm gonna make it fun for wives this week. We're gonna look at what does it look like for us to pursue one another in marriage. So last week, here's what we said. Tragically, there are, there are married women who are not experiencing loving, self-sacrificing leadership from their husbands. That's what we looked at with husbands last week, but this is in your notes. There are, on the other hand, there are men who don't provide godly leadership because they've been trained not to. They don't provide godly leadership because they've been trained not to. Perhaps early efforts in their marriage were were met with belittling remarks and a constant steady critique of the way he's leading and eventually he just said, you know what, You, you wanna lead, it's probably easier for both of us if you just lead. And so he, he gave up on that, right? I know some husbands who they have sought to lead and they've been criticized when they tried to lead and then they backed up and took the submissive route and then they were criticized for not leading, right? So in some ways, because of the fall, marriage can be broken, dysfunctional in ways we talked about last week with the husbands, dysfunctional in ways that we're talking about this week with the wives. God says, this is wisdom, Right, we believe, we abide biblically, which means everything that God says in his word, we believe is the essence of truth and goodness and wisdom and beauty. We can trust these words, they come from a loving God. And here's what a loving, all-wise God says. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, his word, because the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. This is in our notes. The Bible has a warning label attached, or at least it should, and it, and it could say this, not a product of human culture. Not a product of human culture. The uh, Western egalitarianism that is in full bloom in our culture, namely the idea of hostility and an allergic response to any suggestion or any hint of role differences in the house. That idea is in full bloom, and it doesn't come from God's word, right? In God's word, he establishes order in the home. And he says the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. Here's the thing, though. Look, as, as Christians, we trust the Lord, right? We trust he's all wise. We trust that he is fully good, and we trust that he has spoken once and for all in his errorless truth-filled, sufficient word. That's why every week we don't come in here and whoever's up here, me or somebody else, doesn't just spout off at the mouth and give you our uh, you know, 45-year-old opinion. We, we go and we open texts and we look at words written down 2,000 years ago or more and we say, what did God say about this? What does God say about marriage? And he speaks, which means, friends, Ephesians 5, comes from the heart of God a God who loves his people a God who loves the gift of marriage and when a loving good all-knowing God says this is best however counterintuitive and countercultural it might sound when when our God says this is best Christians say of course it is Right, We lean forward, we lean into the text of Scripture, and Ephesians 5 is God's best. Ephesians 5 is original design for marriage. So we talked about last week, leadership. Let's look for a moment at submission, biblical submission, what it is and what it isn't. So I just want to say this, I said it last week, but as it was the case last week when we looked at headship in the home, Ephesians five is the ideal. It's saying aim all the way at the standard of pre-fall marriage design, even though we are in post-fall broken world, married to broken sinner, and she's married to broken sinner, right? It's still saying, aim high, aim at the ultimate standard. So Ephesians 5, through 33, is not qualifying itself into oblivion. It's not talking about all the ways in which marriage is dysfunctional and broken. It's saying, this is the design. Aim all the way up at the design that God intended from the beginning. and, and Having said that though, cuz you might ask the question, if Ephesians 5:22 through 33 is primarily just talking about the ideal and not the broken and dysfunctional parts, then why would we say, you know, what leadership is and isn't? Why would we say what submission is and isn't? Because in the broader context of Ephesians 5, every time God draws lines in the household of order and authority, he he establishes built-in correctives against the misuse of that authority. Look with me at the text. Chapter 5, verse 22. Wives, submit to your husbands. Well, what's going to keep him from abusing this? Verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Love your own wives as your own bodies. Nobody hates his flesh, but he nourishes and cherishes it. That's the preventative word against abuse. Look at chapter 6, verse 1 children obey your parents. What's going to keep them from misusing their authority? Verse four, fathers, you don't get to provoke your children to anger. You don't have a carte blanche, right? You, you too are under authority. There are boundaries to how that authority is to play out. Look again at verse five, chapter six, verse five, bond servants obey. So there's all these context and structures of obedience or submission. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters and then he turns to the masters and says, you don't mistreat them. Because if you threaten them, God threatens you. So there are these built in preemptive strikes, if you will, against the misuse of authority, against the abuse of authority. Recognizing authority structures in the Christian household but giving clear commands against their misuse. So three statements of what submission isn't, and then three statements about what submission is. Number one, submission isn't a statement of inferiority. Submission isn't a statement of inferiority. So when God was about to create Eve, and there's Adam in the garden, and he looks at Adam, and, and he says this. Genesis 2 verse 18, Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper. It's the Hebrew word ezer. I will make a helper corresponding to him. That, if you just read it on the surface of the text and in the secondhand smoke of our culture, that sounds like a seriously offensive and insensitive statement. So, you know, like when, when you hear... Uh, the term Santa's little helper. That doesn't necessarily give you the impression that Santa's helper is on his like executive staff, right? <laughs> and in this sense, you can kind of read that God's gonna, I'm gonna give you a helper, I'm gonna give you a little helper. It can come across that way as if it's derogating or demeaning or belittling to women. But here's what we need to do. When we see that word, we need to study where else it shows up in the Bible so we fully understand what does azer, the Hebrew word, mean. And when you find That word, you see it 21 times in the Old Testament. Two times it refers to Eve. Three times it refers to powerful nations that Israel called upon to help them in a desperate situation. Powerful nations became the Azer of Israel. And then the rest of the times, the other 16 times in the Bible, guess who the Azer is? God. God is the azer. God is the helper. It's this exact same word. Here's a few texts. Happy is the one whose help is the God of Jacob, whose azer is the God of Jacob. Here's another one, Psalm 121, 1 and 2. This might be more familiar to many of us. I lift my eyes toward the hills. Where does my azer come from? My azer comes from the Lord. My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Psalm 70, verse five. I am oppressed and needy. Hurry to me, God. You are my azer. You are my help and my deliverer. Lord, do not delay. In other words, once we study the word azer, we don't get the impression that this is a demeaning term. God is not inferior to those he helps. He is a powerful capacious, sufficient helper. He's not inferior to those that he's helping. Look, when God is spoken of as the Ezer to his people, often in context, it means if God doesn't show up as azer we're goners. His people are done. There's no way they survive this unless he shows up in his azer capacity and then God here in Genesis chapter two at the very beginning he makes Adam and he says there's something that's not good, he's alone. He needs an azer, he needs a strong helper to fill up what's lacking. He is not sufficient for the task. It's time for an azer and he makes from his side Eve. Submission is not a statement of inferiority, the next point. Submission doesn't say follow him even into sin. Doesn't say follow him even into sin. Submit doesn't mean, you know, even when it says submit to your husbands as to the Lord, that doesn't mean that the husband can give his wife a hall pass to sin against God. No, he doesn't have the jurisdiction. It's not his purview to tell her to sin against her ultimate authority. He doesn't have that kind of discretion. When there's a conflict between any human authority and our ultimate authority, we remember the words from the book of Acts, and the church said, we must obey what? God rather than man. It's not unsubmissive. If a husband wants his wife to cheat on their taxes, if a husband wants his wife to get drunk with him, right? she's not being unsubmissive when she respectfully declines. She's pleasing her ultimate authority, God. When there's a conflict between a penultimate or a non-ultimate authority and an ultimate authority, the choice is obvious. We obey the Lord. We please, we live for the pleasure of the Lord. Third, submission doesn't mean be passive or be quiet. So you look at women in the Bible, you look at Abigail in the Old Testament and she's using Tact and diplomacy and courage, and and what she does when she speaks up is she saves her husband's life. And at the same time, her action toward King David, which saves her husband's life, because he's acting as a fool, and it saves him. And at the same time, it acts as a rebuke against his actions. His name is Nabal. His name means foolishness, and it's exactly what he did in that moment. And she spoke up. You look at Esther. Right, you look at uh, Paul urging older women to teach the younger women in Titus chapter two, and he gives a list of things to teach them, and he says, teach them to manage their households. That word manage in the Greek, it's a combination of two Greek words, oikos and despotes, house lord, (laughs) house despot. Uh, right, master of the house right she 's given space to flourish space to use uh, authority. you look at classic passages like psalm right, proverbs thirty one You've got a a woman who is industrious and creative and intelligent and she knows what to buy and she knows how to invest money. She's savvy financially and has business sense. She's making wise purchases. She's doing all kinds, she's instructing and teaching. She opens her mouth and wisdom comes pouring out, right? This is not a woman who's just passive and and quiet. She's active, she's using her God-given gifts for the flourishing of her house and her city and her society. Submission doesn't mean be passive or be quiet. Three things in biblical submission isn't, now finally three expressions of biblical submission. Number one, submission displays in a human relationship our reverence for the Lord. It displays in a human relationship our reverence for the Lord. Submission so often is overlooked as an act of worship but frequently in scripture, and here, it is an act of of worship to God. As a Christian, you think about this. Every Christian in this room, we live in a world shot through with authority. God has designed it that way. We live in a world filled with authority, and if we have disdain, or an unsubmissive attitude toward those authorities, be they government authorities, or local and public health officials, or right, or law enforcement, teachers and principals in class. Right? If we have a disdain for that, we shouldn't be surprised that the next generation is going to come up and and we're going to see a harvest of anarchy, a harvest of rebellion. They don't understand. You live in a world in which God has ordained authority, and our respect and submission to those authorities. We don't get that attitude from the Bible. So the teenage son who goes off to youth camp and has a powerful worship experience and comes back and speaks disrespectfully to his mom hasn't had a powerful enough spiritual experience. He hasn't had the powerful spiritual experience that he thought he had because God wants to say, listen, I know you got goosebumps, but you got to talk to your mom in a way that reflects respect. She's an authority in your life. You change your tone, you change your words if you wanna honor me. It's an act of worship, the way that we speak to those in authority. There's a Godward orientation to human submission in Ephesians. Just look at it with me, 522. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Chapter six, verse one. Children, obey your parents. In the Lord, chapter six, verse six, slaves don't work only while being watched as people pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, verse seven, as to the Lord and not to people, so that the work is done ultimately for the glory of God. It's an act of worship and submission. Number two, submission is a disposition to honor and affirm a husband's leadership. It's what it is, submission is a disposition to honor and affirm a husband's leadership. So most of you know um, that my dad died while he was preaching in 1988 on Palm Sunday, I was 12 years old, I was right there in the front row. Uh, it was, a, it was a obviously a traumatic event for our whole family. What many of you don't know is four years before that, he had a massive stroke and was told he'd never preach again. I remember going into the hospital with our family. My mom was in tears, choking back tears, and dad couldn't speak. He was writing words, and I was only eight years old, and the words that he wrote on the tablet, he was misspelling And Even as an eight-year-old, I knew, that's not the way you spell that, that word. I remember seeing him in the, the front room of our house, learning English, learning grammar, syntax, spelling. I remember even reaching over and helping sometimes, as he struggled along in that. Um, So, there are sermons that you could hear pre-stroke. There are sermons that you heard post-stroke because he sort of stumbled his way back into the pulpit after 1984. And when I went away to college, I brought a big Tupperware full of tapes from Dad's sermons. And you could listen, you could pop one in, and this is a classic, pre-stroke June 1983 sermon. And what do you hear? You hear, dad's on a roll. They had a very vocal, responsive congregation, a small building, small room, so you could hear them talking back. And the loudest voice in the room when dad's on a roll is the gal on the front pew, and that's my mom. And you could hear her voice, amen, preach it. And then you fast forward, and you find another tape, and you put it in, and this is a classic post-stroke sermon sermon. June 1985, and what's happening, dad is, um, he's on a roll and then he gets snagged and he can't think of that word and he can't think of how that sentence ends and he's just stuck in a loop. You just hear him saying the same word over and over and then the gal on the front pew supplies the word and then he gets right back into rhythm finishes that sentence and then she supplies the amen preach it brother she supplied the word and the affirmation you know if if um it's 32 years later if i brought my mom up here this morning and i said mom um tell us about tell us about struggles in marriage Talk about dad's humanity. Talk about what made it difficult to be married to him. Some of his besetting issues or things that were challenging for you to live with him. Um, You would see, because I've seen it a thousand times over these years, you would see she would answer the question, but she would answer it in such a way that it would be obvious. She wanted to answer it so that if he had heard it, he would feel protected. How otherworldly is that? Or who, who wouldn't want a companion like that? Someone who is fiercely for you, who will speak the truth, who won't allow your baser instincts to go fester unaddressed, who will speak the truth to you in private, but who will fiercely defend, who is for you, who is not against you, who will supply the word and supply the amen at the end, right? Mom, in the church, in the home, everywhere they went, she threw all of her gifts. She was an abundant, is an abundantly gifted woman, an intelligent woman, graduated top of her class, in magna cum laude, and she's extremely articulate, extremely intelligent. She threw all her gifts behind him in the service of a God-centered vision for our home. friends. That's the gem that made it out of the Garden of Eden. And God says, I want to polish that thing off and I want to set it in your house. I want you to see how glorious this thing can be. Verse 33 to sum up, each one of you is to love his wife as himself, and the wife is to respect her husband. Here's why I feel (laughs) impossibly rich because I grew up as a child seeing that displayed in my mom and then I married into it as well. I married a woman who does these same things. I've got 45 years on the odometer of seeing the beauty of how this plays out. I'm a deeply thankful. Man, and when I go to texts like this, uh, I, I feel such a desire and a burden to pray that God would just spread this blessing far and wide through, not just through the church, but through this church. And I just pray all week, I did it last week too, every home, like no exemptions, no exceptions, every home reclaim the original design of marriage. Number three, submission in marriage displays the gospel. Submission in marriage displays the gospel. Husbands, the way you love your wives. Wives, the way you respect your husbands. It should be a visible sign of an ancient story, a visible sign of the the story of the gospel. Look at the way Jesus loves the church look at the way she shouts amen preach it right look at the call and response relationship of love and respect and honor and cherishing the dance of complementarity look at it go on in a marriage here but <laughs> there's a dissonant note right because the problem is you married a sinner and so did she or so did he And Ephesians 5 is God calling out to us, but Ephesians 5, honestly, if we're just honest, Ephesians 5 can feel out of reach. It can feel like that is just hopelessly idealistic. That is so far from my reality, especially since we're inclined to treat marriage as a quid pro quo, right? Okay, look, I'm ready to respect you as soon as you start loving. Or I'm ready to show you selfless love as soon as you stop criticizing me. Right, And then everybody just gets entrenched and there's no movement and there's no healing and there's no redemption the way that God intends it. What what if you're a a wife this morning and and you might be saying or thinking in your own heart, Matt, um, I, I hear you talking about a disposition to affirm and honor, but what if there's precious little to honor? What if he... Not only doesn't lead, but he doesn't seem to want to lead. And if he does lead, he's not leading us to God's word. No, doesn't seem to have any intention to do that. What if Matt? To be honest, what if it doesn't look like he cherishes me? Doesn't look like he loves me. He looks unfeeling toward me most of the time. You might be thinking, maybe you're a wife and you're watching, you're here in the room, and you're thinking, I'd give anything. I give anything the way you talked about how your dad looks at your mom, I would give anything for my husband to look at me that way. That's that that's a reality for many marriages. On the other hand, husbands, maybe you're hearing this, you're looking down at a text and you're thinking, "What What does it feel like to have a wife who is fiercely for you? Who supplies the word and the amen. Who is that ready? I haven't. I, maybe you'd say to me, Matt, I haven't felt that in years. It's a icy distance. It is cold in the house. I, I read a true story of a man who who uh, saw a book signing of a woman who's written widely, she's a lecturer, she's a psychologist, and she writes widely on the subject of shame and has written many of her books to women up until that point, point. And, uh, and after the lecture, he wanted to go up and ask her a question, and, uh, and the lecturer, the woman who was writing the book, said I could see that he wanted to ask me a question, and she said I looked over and I saw his wife reach over and grab his arm, and she said the condescension in her eyes was palpable, and she said, Frank, we're leaving, and he said, I want to ask, almost pleading in his eyes, I want to ask her a question about shame, and she said, we're going, and he said, I have to ask her, and he walks up, and he asks this question about shame, and she, he says, why, why don't you write to men as well, because we struggle with it as well, and he said, my wife and the daughter that just walked away a moment ago, he said these words, I wrote them down, would rather me die on my white horse than fall off of it. He said, she wants me to be vulnerable and then punishes me the moment I take off my armor. Friends, Ephesians 5 is impossible without a constant drip of gospel grace. Ephesians 5 is impossible without a fresh daily infilling of the Holy Spirit. That's why he started in this text in chapter 5 verse 18 and said, Be filled with the Spirit. And this is what the Spirit empowers you to do. Three participles. Speak to one another in different ways. Sing to the glory of God. And submit to one another in ways that please the Lord. We need that, right? This is impossible without church community. This may be impossible without you and your wife seeking help and seeking even counseling. Maybe the best thing that could happen tonight for some homes would be for for you to say, and by you I mean either spouse, not I'm gonna wait for the other one, but you to say something like, "Um, I don't know what step or steps need to be taken, I just want you to know, I'm willing to take them because I don't want to give up on this. I want to go back. I want to polish off the gem that made it out of the garden. I want to see God glorify. For, maybe for husbands to say, I doubt you feel cherished and I'm sorry. Or maybe for wives to say, I've been your chief critic and I want to start being fiercely for you. God has given us, friends, a model from marriage here in Ephesians chapter 5. We don't have to figure this out on our own. I'm reading a, a novel right now, All the Light That We Cannot See. It's a beautiful story, and there's a little girl in the book, and she goes blind, and she, her dad loves her very much, and he, he makes a model of the city that they live in so that she can feel each building under her fingers, and how many steps, it's totally detailed, even the bakery that has a bell on the door, there's a tiny bell on the door of the little model bakery, everything is there under her fingers, the exact number of steps from the avenue to the lane, leading to the delicatessen, the exact number of steps, it's the perfect model, and he just, he lays her fingers on top of this model, and he says, this is what this building is, and two blocks down, just feel it, and she feels two blocks down, he says, He turned right, and he's describing the whole city. And after a year of her studying and feeling that model, it's time. And he takes her to the middle of the city of Paris, spins her three times, and says, take me home. And she freaks out, and she panics, and she says, I don't know the way home. And here's what he says, think of the model, Marie. I'm one step behind you. You know where you are, she says, I do not, you do. It's far, papa, six blocks at least. Six blocks is exactly right. Which way should we go first? And it takes some effort, but then she stops and she hears the bell on the door of the bakery and everything orients. And suddenly she knows where she is and she makes one turn after another, her stick in front of her and her dad walking right behind one turn after another, and then they land right there in front of their apartment house. And it says the dad turns his back to her and just puts his face, tilts up toward the snow falling into his face and smiles this broad smile and it says she could see him smiling. And then it says this, he laughs a pure, contagious laugh, father and daughter turning in circles on the sidewalk in front of their apartment house. Friend, your father has built for you a model we set our fingers on the text of this word and he says you know where you are now let's go home